Hello, friend. I'm glad to see you weren't too spooked last time, and you've returned to the woods. Here, take your place next to the campfire. It's all ready for you. If you haven't listened to part one of this Halloween episode, I highly recommend that you do. We have 31 stories from 31 different crime podcasts. All the podcasts are listed in order of appearance, along with a link on where you can find them. I am your friend to guide you through the darkness, Shane Waters, from Foul Play Crime Series. Oh, my friend finally just showed up, by the way. Mike Brown from Dark Poutine joins us from north of the 49th parallel. That's Canada, if you didn't know. Canadians are known for their politeness, but as Mike will remind us, a recent sword attack in Quebec City shows us some Canadians have a dark side too. In that attack on Halloween night, a man dressed in what has been described as medieval clothing went on a slashing and stabbing spree with a razor-sharp Japanese-style katana sword. After the attack, two people were left dead, and another five were hospitalized, some with serious injuries, and the attacker had fled the scene. One of the most notable buildings in Old Quebec City, overlooking the picturesque St. Lawrence River, is the historic and posh Chateau Frontenac Hotel. Chateau Frontenac, a National Historic Site of Canada since 1981, first opened for business in 1893. It was here at around 10 p.m. on October 31, 2020, that a black four-door Saturn was left motor still running by its driver, 24-year-old Carl Gerard. Gerard, dressed in black jogging pants, black leather boots, a short-sleeve kimono, and a black mask, had his sharpened 76.9-centimeter bladed katana sword in hand. He'd left his home in St. Therese, Quebec, a suburb of Montreal, in the afternoon and had driven the 270 kilometers to Quebec City with murder on his mind. After exiting his vehicle, Gerard approached his first victim, a 26-year-old musician named Remy Belanger. Belanger was out for a leisurely stroll. He was listening to a podcast and stood to take a picture of Chateau Frontenac when he noticed a man, clad in black, advancing quickly toward him, sword above his head. Belanger later recalled thinking at first that it was a Halloween reveler playing some kind of joke to irritate him. But when the first blow landed, hitting him in the head, he knew he was in trouble. Belanger put up his hand to defend himself and his fingers were severed. He fell to his knees as the attacker kept slashing and stabbing at him. Remy Belanger managed to pick up his fingers, got to his feet and fled toward the lobby of Chateau Frontenac, screaming for help in both English and French. Remy Belanger was later treated for wounds to his skull, neck, back, chest, arms, hands, and hip. A cellist, Remy was transferred to a hospital in Montreal that specializes in limb replantation. There, doctors worked hard to save his hand so he could play music again. As Belanger ran away, Gerard did not pursue him, but turned his attention to 56-year-old Francois Duchesne. He was much beloved as the communications director for the Musée National des Beaux-Arts du Québec. He was out for a slow jog. Gerard, frustrated by his failure to kill Remy Belanger only moments before, made sure he succeeded this time. He attacked Duchesne from behind, hacking, slashing, and stabbing the defenseless man 13 times in the neck, trunk, and back. 
Francois lay bleeding on the sidewalk of Du Trésor Street, where he was tended to by two good Samaritans who had called 911, but it was too late. Francois Duchesne bled to death at the scene. Another couple walking together on Debaud Street, Pierre Lagravol and Lisa Mahmoud also encountered Carl Gerard that night. They too thought he was wearing a Halloween costume as he walked up to them, sword in the attack position. Lisa Mahmoud didn't feel threatened and smiled at Gerard just before he hit Pierre Lagravol. During the attack, Lagravol had screamed for Gerard to stop, but the attacker persisted, unfazed. Pierre, who had serious wounds to the skull and shoulder, said, quote, He looks serene. He wasn't in shock mode from what he had just done. End quote. As Carl Gerard slashed and stabbed at Lisa Mahmoud at least 13 times, Lisa recalled, exclaiming, What are you doing? Luckily, before Gerard could finish the job, Lagraval and Mahmoud managed to flee. Gerard's next victim was not so lucky. On Day's Rampart Street, 61-year-old Suzanne Claremont had just stepped out the front door to have a cigarette. Suzanne's husband, Jacques, inside doing the dishes, was startled by the sound of Suzanne's loyal dog howling like he'd never heard before. A hairdresser, Suzanne was a bright spot in the community during the COVID-19 pandemic, participating in regular, socially distanced gatherings with neighbors to watch the sunset every evening atop the Old Quarter's fortifications. Jacques ran outside to find Suzanne laying on the sidewalk, bleeding heavily from several wounds. He later said, I saw that she had a deep gash in the middle of her forehead. I tried to close the wound with my hands to hold her face together. Their neighbor, an emergency room doctor, ran outside baseball bat in hand. She tried performing CPR, but Suzanne Claremont had lost too much blood. In the last group to encounter Carl Gerard was Gilberto Lucio Porras Alvarado. He was out with three of his friends when they came across Gerard all in black, sword at his side. Gerard said, Happy Halloween, before drawing his sword. Porras Alvarado, who thought the sword was fake at first, said he quickly realized the weapon was very real as the first blows landed. He and two of his friends fled together. The fourth person of the group, a young person whose name is under publication ban, was pursued and injured by Gerard. That young person also escaped, hiding inside a gas station. He was later treated for injuries. Porras Alvarado, who'd suffered cuts to his head and a finger before he managed to escape, spent two weeks in hospital. There'd been a flood of 911 calls, coming in talking about a sword-wielding attacker dressed like a ninja and last seen heading in the direction of the port. Shortly before 1 a.m. on November 1st, 2020, a port officer on patrol in the old port of Quebec noticed a man hiding in a bush. Aware of the attacks, the officer notified police and cops arrived en masse taking the blood-covered man into custody. Carl Gerard, who was not talking at first, had no criminal record. It was quickly learned that in 2015, Gerard, quote, in a mental health context, had made threats to do just as he did, kill people indiscriminately, and cause as much chaos and mayhem as he possibly could. Why hadn't he gotten the help that he needed at the time? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was one of many dignitaries to weigh in on the situation as the nation woke up to the news of a horrific series of attacks in what is normally a peaceful city. Flags in the province were temporarily brought to half-mast to honor the victims. Witnesses and police described Carl Gerard as calm and compliant during his arrest. He had no ID and at first refused to identify himself. After he was in custody, he was taken to hospital and later transported to a detention facility to be interrogated. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the killings of Suzanne Claremont and Francois Duchesne. 
Carl Gerard's defense team claimed that the 24-year-old was driven to kill and who his victims were didn't matter at all. He admitted to killing Duchesne and Claremont and injuring the five others. But his lawyer argued he was not criminally responsible at the time of the events because he was suffering from a mental disorder. At the outset of the trial was chilling testimony from witnesses to the attacks and surviving victims, all noting Gerard's deliberate, eerily calm demeanor during the stabbing and slashing spree that Halloween night. The prosecution had argued that the acts were premeditated, noting Gerard had spoken to mental health workers since his late teen years about using a sword to attack people. The Crown's primary expert, psychiatrist Dr. Sylvain Fauchier, concluded that Gerard suffered from a personality disorder and was on a narcissistic quest to express his resentment towards society, concluding that there were no signs of delusional thinking. The accused knew very much what he was doing was wrong. Shackled and handcuffed in the witness box, Gerard testified on his own behalf. The accused killer claimed that his goal was to create chaos, change the world, and encourage like-minded people. He stated that by the time he was 18 years old, he believed he had a top-secret mission to kill and that his life would be sacrificed at the end of it. After Claremont's killing, though, he said he began to question his actions. I thought I would have a feeling of accomplishment, but that wasn't the case, Gerard told the jury. I decided there shouldn't be one more death, my own or anyone else's, end quote. Gerard told the court he was fearful when he arrived in Quebec City and didn't want to go ahead with his plan, but felt he had no choice. He described the killings as duty. I went against my will. I didn't want to, but I had to, Gerard said. I saw lots of people and I attacked them with my sword to execute my mission. Gerard then told the jury that the killer no longer existed. There's a Carl Gerard with you today who likes making people laugh and helping others, Gerard said. It's different from Carl Gerard from the mission who feels obliged to isolate himself. But that's in the past. There's no Carl Gerard from the mission anymore. Dr. Gilles Chamberlain, a psychiatrist, testified for the defense, concluding that Gerard was on the autism spectrum, suffered from schizophrenia, and was delirious and in a state of psychosis the night of the killings, unable to distinguish right from wrong. On May 20th, 2022, minutes after beginning their fifth day of deliberations, the jury came to a decision. Guilty on both counts of first-degree murder. On June 10, 2022, Carl Gerard was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole before 2045. Hopefully, residents of Quebec City will rest a little easier knowing that the killer is behind bars for a long time. That said, Halloween will never be the same for those who lost loved ones or lived through the attacks. Did you think I first misspoke when you heard me say sword attack? My next friends that are joining us might have moonshine, by the way. I hope you don't mind. They are a husband and wife duo, Jerry and Tracy, from the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast. I have no doubt that you'll love them as much as I do. So Tracy, let's jump in. For this episode, we're going to cover a Kentucky story, since that's where we're from. We're going to cover a story from Lewis County, Mm -hmm. which is up around the uh, West Virginia, Ohio border. Mm -hmm. Border, yep. Mary Lou and her family move into a house. I had an Aunt Mary Lou. Is that a fact? Yes. Rest in peace. She's passed on. It was my mommy's sister. Okay. So her family moves into this house. In case anybody cared. (laughs) Sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) That everyone said was haunted. Everybody in the, the surrounding area. Now, this house at one time belonged to an older couple who was having some marital problems. 
And during this time, the wife basically kicked the husband out of the home. Well, the husband really didn't have any place to go, so he decided to stay in an outbuilding that was just a few feet from the house. That seems fair. Yeah, the building was actually connected to the house by a walkway. Okay, yeah, like a breezeway or something. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, this was during a very hot summer, and that building must have become unbearably hot. Hot to the point that the husband was found dead of an apparent heat stroke. Oh, wow. Dang, that's hot. You heard of a fan? (laughs) Soon after, there were reports of the deceased husband being seen wandering the property on very hot nights. Now, when Mary Lou's family moved into the house, it was spring. So there really were no issues, except that the family couldn't seem to keep the door closed on that small outbuilding. I wonder how long it was till Mary Lou found out that he had passed. I don't know, and I didn't have any way of researching that. Oh, okay. I don't even know what year any of this happened, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Well, I wouldn't want you to lie. (laughs) Eventually... Mary Lou's husband had to lock the door with a padlock. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Mary Lou's husband goes to work one morning. Mary Lou's just sitting up in the kitchen, drinking her coffee. She hears heavy footsteps coming up the stairs. This is inside the house. And then she hears the back door slam shut. Mm -hmm. She thought, well, this is odd because anyone leaving through the back door would have had to walk right past her. Yeah, in the kitchen. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't act like you know the layout of the house. I do. I got it down in my mind. The footsteps were too heavy for a child, but she went and checked on the children just just to make sure, and all the children were still asleep in their beds. She took a look around, and she found the back door standing wide open, which okay. is odd because it had slammed shut. Yeah. But that, now... It's open. It's wide open. Yeah, I'd be scared. She decided to ignore the noises that she'd been hearing in the, the door slamming shut because... It was extremely warm outside, and she wanted to just shut the door and not let the hot air in. Later that day, she decides to go out and do some work in the yard, some little bit of gardening. She sat down under a tree to take a little bit of a break because, like we said, it was kind of warm. She hears the back door slam shut again. She knows the sound because she already heard it once that day. So she looks towards the house, and she can see the curtains part in the kitchen window as if someone's Was peeking looking out, out. Mm. and kind of moving it with their two hands. Yeah. At a second glance, she saw nothing. But then she saw the curtains fall back across the window. She immediately gets up. She walks around her house trying to convince herself that she's just imagining all this. And she comes across the opened basement door. She was sure that she had locked that door. She assumed that maybe the heat was just kind of making her delusional. She relocked the basement door, and then she went back to her work in the yard. She later passed by the door to only find it open again. The basement door? The basement door. Now, this really shook her up this time. Well, yeah, that's where it's cooler. Well, you letting all the hot air in. <laughs> as soon as her husband got home, she told him about the events of the day. Now, her husband couldn't believe what he was hearing and in fact he scolded her for believing it herself now over the next few weeks the weather got extremely hot with that the paranormal activity increased as well 
or should we say heated up? Uh-huh. Well, you know a paranormal don't like a daggone heat either. Shoot. The building in which the old man died was now padlocked, as we talked about. Even with that being the case, the door was still found standing wide open on several occasions. Mary Lou would lock it back, and time and time again, to no avail. I would have just given up. Her husband kept telling Mary that there had to be some kind of a simple explanation, but he sure didn't have one to offer up for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, padlocks just become unlocked and taken off the lock and doors to open all the time. True. I mean, I wonder what else was in there. I don't know. I can't imagine there was anything in there that anybody would want to take. One morning, she heard noises coming from the kitchen. And when she got in there, the whole room was vibrating as if an angry hand was shaking the whole room. There were also sounds coming from inside the walls. It sounded as if someone was tearing at the boards trying to rip them away. Later, that evening, as Mary Lou was lying in bed... Her son comes running into the room. He said that he heard a noise coming from the attic that was above his room. He said it sounded like someone was trying to get out. Ooh. She put him in her bed to calm him down like most good mothers would. But just as she was about to doze off, the whole house started violently shaking again. Okay, was the husband there? Did he hear it? We'll get to it. The windows were vibrating so hard that it seemed like they were going to basically come out of their frames. And yes, her husband actually witnessed this event. He could no longer deny that something supernatural appeared to be at work here. His answer was to vacate the premises. Looking back at the events years later, Mary Lou realizes that each of these occurrences happened at extremely hot days or hot nights. Mm. She said it was almost as if the poor old man's soul was opening doors to get air. Mary Lou says she wonders if maybe someone had locked the door on that outbuilding, trapping the old man inside, causing his death, and leaving his soul to wander, trying to tear out windows and doors, seeking relief from the intense heat. Oh, bless his heart. That's an awful way to go. There would be an awful way to go. That's so terrible. So, yeah, like I said, I, I don't know what the situation was. I don't know what year it happened. I don't know if somebody did lock the man in, and that's why he was so against locks, or maybe yeah. Just, but who would have known he was in there except for uh, his, wife. his wife? I don't know. I mean, who who else would have a reason to lock the door? Well, that mean heifer. We don't know that she did that. Well, that's just an assumption that um, that could have happened. I mean, it could just be that he wants the door open so he can't be trapped in there. Yeah, so it didn't mean that it got locked in there at one point. Right, he just right. wants to keep it open now. Yeah. Well, that so. poor soul. I could smell the moonshine, couldn't you? Bless their hearts. You must be thinking, man, Shane has a lot of friends. And you're right, I do. And isn't it also amazing that this campfire doesn't need replenished with wood? I have four more friends to introduce you to. And here comes Eric Carter Landon now. Eric is the host of True Consequences which focuses on crime and mysteries in New Mexico and the American desert southwest. Plus, he is a really good person altogether. You'll love him. Eric, take it away. Sometimes, late at night, on the ditch banks, rivers, lakefronts, and arroyos of New Mexico, people claim to hear the wails and sobs 
of a woman. She sounds distraught. She cries out. If you ever hear this cry, it's best you avoid any waterways and by no means should you try to find or help this woman. If you value your life, you will close your eyes and go to sleep. Children, heed this warning. Be wary of the cries of this woman. I am Eric Carter Lundin and this is Halloween at True Consequences. Maria was the most beautiful woman in her pueblo. She was well sought after by all the suitable bachelors in town, but she was not interested in any of them. It wasn't until she met a tall and mysterious man from out of town that she even considered dating anyone. He was quite the catch. He was rich, handsome, well-traveled, and the pair started dating, and very soon, they were in love. In a matter of months, they were engaged, and a short time later, the couple were married in a huge celebration. The whole neighborhood was decorated with colorful paper flags and flowers. Within a couple of years, Maria and her husband had two kids. Everything was going perfectly until one spring night. On the night of March 13, 1550, on the streets of Mexico City, Maria was wandering the streets, grief-stricken and angry. She had never been treated in such a way. The shame she felt was consuming her. How could her husband have embarrassed her like that in front of everyone? She waited faithfully for him while he traveled around the country, and he has the nerve to show up with a new woman in his carriage? He didn't even apologize for what he did. He simply told her it was over and rode away as his new lover laughed. She laughed. Who did they think they were? Maria was the prettiest woman in their neighborhood. She could have any man that she wanted. No one treated Maria that way. Not if they didn't want to suffer. Oh, he was going to suffer. She'd show him. She'd show them all. Maria would make sure that no one tried to hurt her like this ever again. She gathered up her resolve as she headed back to her house. She was wailing loudly as she made her way back to her doorstep. Maria was heartbroken. How could the man of her dreams betray her like this? She walked up the stairs and inhaled the smell of fresh tamales that she had made for her husband's arrival. He was going to pay for what he did. He will never forget this day. She was going to make sure of it. As she approached the bedroom of her children, she gently and silently opened the door. She strolled across the bedroom and walked over to their beds and kissed each of them on their foreheads. Her son Julian and daughter Sofia were softly breathing she gently woke them and led the pair down the stairs. What's happening, mama? The boy asked. No te preocupes, mi amor. Don't worry, my love, she said. Where are we going, mama? Little Sofia asked. Somewhere beautiful, mijita. They crossed the street and headed to the creek. Mama, tengo miedo. I'm afraid, said Julian. Maria said, I know, mijito. Then she picked up her two children and submerged herself 
into the forceful stream. Her final thought was that her husband would be destroyed by what she did. Unfortunately, they all perished. As a curse for her horrible deeds, Maria was forced to wander the waterways of the southwestern United States and Central and South America searching for her children. But her heart was so twisted with vengeance and rage that she became a predatory ghost, seeking out children who misbehave or are foolish enough to wander the bodies of water at night. She became known as La Llorona, or the Weeping Woman. She's been seen in what seems to be a white wedding dress, all the while crying for her children. When an unsuspecting child finds themselves near a river, stream, or lake, they are likely to be taken and drowned by La Llorona. This story, or maybe something similar, is told over and over to children in Latino households as a means to keep them away from the water and to make them behave. Other cultures have Santa Claus giving you coal. Well, we have a ghost that will abduct you and drown you. Yeah, I know, it's messed up. But it is such a rich folktale with a long history and it continues to be passed down from generation to generation. All I can tell you is that if you ever hear the cries of a woman looking for her children late at night, don't go near the water or La Llorona just might get you. Thanks for listening and stay spooky, New Mexico. Okay, you just heard a tale from New Mexico, so now let's go to Texas. Gone Cold is hosted by Vincent. He covers crime and mysteries specifically in the Lone Star State. In the early 1990s, at age 13 or 14, I joined a group of friends at what was reportedly a haunted attraction off the beaten path in Fort Worth. If I remember right, we timed our arrival there at around midnight. Now, I personally did not expect to hear the screams of the ghosts who were said to haunt this area. Rather, it was the punk rock blasting from my older friend's car radio, cigarettes, booze, and a lack of adult supervision that got me there. Many of the folks I was with, however, were there to hear the ghoulish, anguished cries of the apparitions rumored to roam this particular pitch-black, dark, and heavily wooded spot in Tarrant County. They were there for the scare, and we all got one. But it wasn't the result of the roaming ghosts of three teenaged girls constantly reliving their deaths thirty years before. Instead, it was the cops. And at the height of the absurd era known as Satanic Panic, it's likely those boys in blue figured they'd busted up what was about to become some sort of devilish ritual or blood sacrifice rather than what it was, a bunch of latchkey kids cutting loose. Several of my delinquent friends and I successfully outmaneuvered and outran the police, luckily for us. Anyway, it didn't matter that the cops broke up the party, though we were somewhat close. We hadn't even gone to the right spot to hear the lost souls. 
the place known as Screaming Bridge. On the night of Saturday, February 4, 1961, Arlington High School juniors Mary Lou, Kathy, Claudia, Donna, Joanne, and Dorothy left an Arlington movie theater as the credits for the film Butterfield 8, starring Elizabeth Taylor, began to roll. Packed tightly into Mary Lou's mid-1950s two-door Chevy, the girls went cruising. Perhaps the chilly, foggy night under a near-full moon as inspiration, five of the girls wanted to show the new girl, Joanne, the area's haunted spots. Like Hell's Gate, through which, legend has it, a group of Union spies were led to their hanging deaths at the hands of Confederate soldiers during the Civil War, and where the cries and prayers of their ghosts can be heard. And, perhaps, a lover's lane near the railroad tracks where a hobo, who had just jumped off the train, is said to have been shot to death as he tried to help a woman in a car who was being assaulted. His ghost, if you're apt to believe such a thing, taps on the windows of parked cars, making sure the occupants are safe. Joanne was a recent addition to the student body at Arlington High, and there seemed no better way to break her into the area than to introduce her to local apparitions. But before showing the new girl those sights, the teenagers made their way to another known lover's lane nearby. As they did, the girl spoke of an escaped convict, an urban legend about a sometimes masked man with a hook for a hand that terrorized teenagers necking at lover's lanes likely a tale inspired by the terrifying and true Texas crimes committed by the phantom killer of Texarkana in the 1940s. There was little doubt the teenagers worked themselves up. They drove to an especially dark and secluded area of Arlington Bedford Road, heading south from Mosier Valley, and parked, still eerily whispering the tale of the hook-handed man. After a few minutes, they noticed a car coming toward them, flashing its lights and honking its horn. The driver was shouting at them, but the girls couldn't understand what he was saying. And anyway, they were too spooked to find out. Instead, Mary Lou put the car in drive and stepped on the gas. The driver of the other vehicle was horrified. He'd stopped just beyond a railroad crossing and between the passing train's lights and those of his own vehicle, he saw blackness where the road's bridge had once been. It was just in time, the young man said he was no more than two feet from the long drop to the ditch below. After backing up, his headlights caught the barricades and sign warning bridge out that some malicious person had removed from the road. But the girls weren't so lucky. Unable to see what was ahead in time to stop, the car carrying Mary Lou, Kathy, Claudia, Donna, Joanne, and Dorothy plunged 25 feet down to the wooded and rocky drainage ditch below. The vehicle slammed into the other side's embankment, some 40 feet across. It was approximately 10.15 p.m. 
Later, it was estimated that they were traveling 45 to 55 miles an hour. Mary Lou and Claudia were killed instantly upon impact. Weeks-old ice patches on the road from an earlier winter storm, along with the embankment's mud-slicked surface, made the rescue operation a difficult one, as did the sleet coming down. When responders and authorities were finally able to pull the girls from the wreckage, ambulances transported them to area hospitals. Kathy died upon arrival at a hospital in Dallas. Donna, Joanne, and Dorothy sustained major injuries that caused lifelong physical impairments and, of course, unimaginable, immeasurable emotional trauma. The wooden bridge at Arlington Bedford Road was burned down by four teenaged arsonists the week prior. Though their actions would be labeled in a kind of boys-will-be-boys way by local authorities, who called what they did vandalism or mischief, it's long been rumored they'd set that particular bridge on fire because of who crossed it going south. The first freed person's community in Tarrant County, Mosier Valley, or the River Bottoms as it is also known, was predominantly black in 1961. Some say the boys burned the bridge to impede members of that community's travel into North Arlington. A Tarrant County grand jury later declined to indict the boys, all of whom were white. They deserved a chance to make good, grand jurors said. Quote, no good would come of blighting the entire future of a group of bright and religious young men. Whoever moved the barricades put in place by county employees after these boys destroyed the bridge was supposedly never identified. No one has ever been held accountable for the deaths and injuries of these girls, and the case in my mind remains unresolved. Countless iterations of the origins of Screaming Bridge have been told over the years including that the girls were cheerleaders who were waved on by a sadistic man who knew what he was leading them to. They were neither cheerleaders nor waved on by anyone. Also, folks say two cars crashed in the middle of the one-lane wooden bridge, which caught fire and gave way, sending the passengers of both vehicles 25 feet straight down. That, of course, isn't even close to the truth. Besides the screams of the three teenaged girls who were killed at Screaming Bridge on February 4, 1961, folks have reported phenomena like the rolling in of heavy, mystic fog, whatever that means, and the appearance of Mary Lou, Claudia, and Kathy's tombstones on the surface of the murky, dull water. On the wrong bridges, folks report seeing the shimmering of headlights or almost dying as they nearly drive off the structures themselves. Many ghost hunters and pursuers of the paranormal have tried to find the deadly site, but most often find instead one of two of the wrong concrete bridges in the area that are admittedly scary places in their own right. However, after being replaced with a concrete drainage tunnel filled in with dirt and rock around it, soon after the deaths and injuries. 
No trace of Screaming Bridge has remained for many decades. Thanks for listening, y'all. My next friend is approaching, and before she gets here, I have to warn you that I've met her in person before, and not to get scared. Yes, I agree, I too think the devil himself is likely terrified of her, but in all honesty, she is a very kind lady. (laughs) While everyone else has scary tales, I thought it would be really nice to hear a personal story from her. Hello, Nancy Grace here from Crime Stories and CrimeOnline.com. Halloween is one of my favorite times of the year, and it always has been. But I have to tell you that once I've had the twins, John, David, and Lucy, it's so much more fun. I love everything we do. Dressing them up, buying candy, decorating the house. I think I'm the only person in the neighborhood that has So many ghosts hanging from trees and skeletons sitting on patio furniture. I love it. I think back when I was a little girl in rural Bibb County, middle Georgia. We were so far out of the city of Macon, which was small itself, (laughs) being like a 30-minute drive in. So there were very few homes to go and trick-or-treat with. And... It would be so dark out in the country at night, and we did not have anything like store-bought Halloween outfits. I remember for several years in a row, I would be a ghost, and I was so short, I'd actually wear a pillowcase, and the pillowcase would cover my head, of course, and go down to my ankles, and we would cut holes in the pillowcase for eyes. That was I didn't know we were poor. I was perfectly happy the way we were, but that would be my Halloween outfit. And I also remember that it dawned on me much later that the pillowcases had pink stripes. So I was a very scary pillowcase with pink stripes ghost. But it was so much fun. And I remember Miss Julia that lived on a huge farm next to our little spot would always make caramel apples and dress up like a witch and hand them out from her front porch. That was the big thing, going all the way in the night by foot under the moonlight to get that caramel apple. And believe you me, I absolutely would do it. Of course, there were always older boys or teens scaring all the trick-or-treaters. At that time in my life, I didn't really know what to be scared of. (laughs) I didn't know anything about crime or scary movies or anything like that growing up. I really only learned about crime when my fiance was murdered just before our wedding. And that's when my world blew up and I found out about violent crime and that there were actually things to be scared of in this world. But growing up in rural Georgia, where there was nothing to see as far as you could look except for soybean fields and tall pine trees, that was a great way to have Halloween. And I remember my mother would always make a meal, the one we dreaded and hated the most, and we couldn't trick-or-treat until we ate it. For instance, one year it was stewed prunes. 
Anyway, thanks, Mom. That said, I have great memories growing up with Halloween. Then I had the twins. Now, that's a whole nother can of worms. That is an extravaganza like no other compared only to their birthday or Christmas. There has to be the right outfit. I remember one year, John David changed outfits. I think it was four times. And the same for Lucy. One year she was a cat. She was a witch. She was some other animal, spider. That takes a lot of wardrobe changes. I mean, you got to have one for the school party, one for the church trunk fest, one for the actual trick-or-treating. I mean, and no, she doesn't sit. They don't sit out going, I want five outfits. It's just, Mom, I want to be a witch now, or I want to be a cat. I'll never forget when John David wanted to be a bush. A bush, so he could sneak up on houses. Well, we got him a ghillie suit, and he looked like a bush. You know those things you see in war movies when it looks like an empty field, and all of a sudden the soldiers all jump up? They're wearing ghillie suits. My son has one. I saved it because I'm sure one day I'm going to need a ghillie suit. Haven't used it yet, but oh, oh, I'm so glad I'm doing this because I just remembered I came up with my costume for this year, last year. I'm going to be Cousin It. I love Cousin It off the Adams Family. And I got the most awesome Cousin It outfit. Sometimes I wear it around the house just to scare the children. But now, you know, they've seen me come out so many times. I've got the whole thing. I've got the long hair that goes head to toe, the hat, and the glasses. I can't wait. Now, that's deviating from my typical, as predicted, witch outfit. A lot of people ask me, do you go see horror movies in Halloween? And the answer to that is a big H-E-L-L-N-O. No, I don't. Why? I've seen plenty of horror movies in real life. They weren't movies. They were real. Triple homicides, one homicide after the next, every type you can imagine. Drowning, strangulation, stabbing, shooting, asphyxiation, smothering, manual ligature, overdose, you name it, I've seen it. Bludgeoning, that's a bad one. So I have no desire to relive those real-life experiences on the big silver screen. I'm going to stick with trick-or-treat. I'm going to help the twins get one of their mini costumes together. I'm going to follow them just as the sun sets at a discreet distance. It's like I'm not even there to make sure that no harm befalls them. We're going to have fun. We're going to hand out candy in the front yard to anybody that comes by. It's going to be a spooky night. And when the children get home, We're going to talk about all the candy they got. We're going to line it up on the floor so they can count it and see who got the most. P.S. It's always John David. They're going to run around the house stealing each other's candy, laughing their heads off. They're going to go to sleep too late because it's a school night this year. And then once I know they're asleep, I'm going to go through all their candy to make sure There are no razor blades, and they will never know the real-life horrors that are out there. 
they'll sleep like two little angels. And so will I. So happy Halloween. That will be me, Cousin It. Nancy Grace, signing off. <laughs> That's my very best witch's laugh. How was it? I thought that was pretty good. And I'm looking forward to seeing Nancy Grace and her cousin Ed outfit. I don't know about you. Okay, now it's time for our last terrifying tale. This one is to help you go to sleep. Callie Barron's Brinks hosts True Crime IRL and True Crime Sleep Stories. In 1912, in Villisca, Iowa, the Moore family was considered affluent in their small community, and they were very well-liked. Josiah, age 43, was married to Sarah, 39, and together they had a beautiful, happy family with their four children, Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur Boyd, and the youngest, Paul Vernon. On the evening of June 9th, the Moore family was attending a fun Children's Day program at their church. Lots of people were going to be there, including their good friends, the Stillinger family. 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and 8-year-old Ina Stillinger were good friends with the only Moore daughter, Catherine. The church event wasn't scheduled to end until about 10 p.m. that evening, and the little Stillinger girls were apprehensive to walk in the dark the two miles they'd needed to trek home. The walk home would have been especially dark for the little girls on this particular night because the electric company and the Villisca Town Council were in the midst of a dispute about lighting. So the electric company shut off all the lights in the town, making the town extra dark. The Moors arranged sleepover plans with the Stillingers, and Lena and Ina accompanied the family of six to their East 2nd Street home after church services ended. Bedtime would have come a little later than usual this evening, with not arriving home until around 10 p.m. and having guests. So we can assume that all the kiddos were tucked in and sleeping by around 11 p.m. with JB and Sarah right behind them. Lena and Ina Stillinger slept downstairs in the main floor guest bedroom. Up the steep staircase and just to the left was the bedroom that the four more children shared. In between the two bedrooms was a small door that led into an attic storage space, and this is where it's thought that someone may have been waiting until everyone in the house was fast asleep. The murders are thought to have happened sometime after midnight. They were bludgeoned to death with an axe, leaving their faces unrecognizable. The furious axe swings left scrapes and indentations in the walls and ceilings which can still be seen in the house today. After brutally attacking this family, he went one by one and covered each person's head with clothing to cover their mutilated faces. The sun would rise on Villisca, Iowa the morning of June 10th over a town that would be forever changed neighbor Mary Peckham got up at the crack of dawn to hang laundry on the clothesline and found it immediately unusual to see no activity coming from the normally busy Moore house. By 8 a.m., Mary Peckham had a sinking feeling that something just wasn't right next door. She knocked on the door with no answer. 
She rang for J.B. Moore's brother, Ross, telling him something was going on next door, but that she didn't know what. She asked him to come over and check on the family, and he did. Like Mary, he knocked, tried to open the door and all of that, but nothing. He unlocked the house and went inside alone while Mary stayed safe outside the door. The house was eerily still, quiet and dark. He immediately noticed that all of the curtains had been tightly drawn and covered with additional items of clothing to block out any light that could seep in, making the small house seem all the more stifling. When he opened the bedroom door, Ross saw two bodies on the bed and dark stains on the bedclothes. He returned immediately to the porch and told Mrs. Peckham to call the sheriff, and these findings would set into place one of the most mismanaged murder investigations ever to be undertaken. Once the murders were discovered, news traveled quickly in the small town. As neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house, law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene. Had these murders been committed today, it's almost certain that law enforcement officials would have easily solved the crime and brought the murderer to justice. Almost 100 years later, however, the Velisca Axe murders still remain a mystery. While no one was ever convicted of the Velisca Axe murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. In the days following the crimes, you could have read about at least four possibilities in any edition of the newspaper. Many of the leads, however, were quickly exhausted, and as time wore on, they began to dwindle. There are many who believe Frank Jones, a prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator, was responsible for the brutal deaths of the Moores and the Stillinger children. Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones at his implement store for many years before leaving to open his own store. Moore repeatedly took business away from Frank Jones, including a very successful John Deere dealership. And Josiah Moore was rumored to have had a sexual affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, though no evidence supports this. Were these bad business dealings and a potential affair enough motive for murder? Many people think yes, but many people also think Reverend George Kelly was responsible for the murders. Kelly was an English-born traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. He was described as peculiar, reportedly having suffered a mental breakdown as an adolescent. As an adult, he was accused of being a peeping Tom and several times asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. In 1917, Kelly was even arrested for the Velisca Axe murders. Police obtained a confession from him. However, it followed many hours of intense interrogation, and later, Kelly recanted. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. And finally, in their 2017 book, The Man from the Train, Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, discuss the Velisca Axe murders as part of a much larger series of murders, which they believe were all committed by one single serial killer. They conclude that the murderer was Paul Mueller, an immigrant, possibly from Germany, who was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. 
The co-authors of the book believe that Mueller was guilty of the Velisca Axe murders, as well as a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 separate incidents. So who was responsible for the Velisca Axe murders? To this day, we still don't know, but there was a strong possibility that a serial killer was actually at work. To many people, it seems as though the house is trying to speak to them. Visits by paranormal investigators have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. Tours of the home have often been cut short by children's voices, falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have stated that there's a presence of spirits dwelling in the home, and many have claimed to communicate with them. Skeptics have come into the home and left believers. Who killed the victims of the Velisca Axe murders? And is the house haunted? You can find out for yourself, and you can even stay there overnight. Have a happy and safe Halloween, everyone, and be sure to lock your doors. Bye-bye. Well, all good things must come to an end. I hope you enjoyed A Nightmare Before Halloween. And don't forget you can find the names of all the podcasts involved in the show notes, along with where to listen. Each of the stories you heard in this collaboration were created by those podcasters to give you this extra entertainment. So please, wherever you're listening, let your podcaster know that you appreciate them and what they do. I'd also like to thank my team at Foul Play Crime Series, for helping me put together this episode. It was seriously a massive undertaking. Again, I'm Shane Waters, and it's been my honor to be your friend in the dark. Good night.